This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. I want to start off this episode by wishing everyone a happy Discovery Day. Yes, this episode has dropped the day of the premiere of Discovery in the United States. Yay! If I had those little party poppers, I'd set them off right now, but I, 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 <laughs> I don't because it's actually quite a bit before Discovery airs for us here in the past. But, you know... Talking to ourselves in the future who are going to be watching Discovery in a few hours. How cool is that? I can tell you that at this very moment, I'm probably dancing around the house. <laughs> like, just <laughs> all excited, like, ooh, it's coming on tonight. It's coming, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. And it's two episodes. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm excited. I really can't wait. Right there with you. I'm <laughs> like, any time the subject comes up, I'm giddy. So, uh I feel like this, you know, today of all days, I'm going to be impossible to be around. Yes. Well, and just so everyone knows, today's episode, we are going to read the novel Mud in Your Eye. Now, there's a reason we're reading that is because it features Harry Mudd and Harry Mudd is in Discovery. So we're going to do Mud in Your Eye. And then on our next episode, episode 205, we're going to review the novel Sarek. Why? Because Sarek is in Discovery, too. But it gets better, doesn't it, Dan? What comes up in episode 206? Episode 206 is really exciting because episode 206 will be the first original Star Trek Discovery novel written by David Mack titled Desperate Hours. Now, this one comes out officially just two days after the world premiere of Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. So how cool is that? We get we get a new show and two days later, a brand new novel about Discovery. And David Mack will be on the show. We will be talking to him about that. So, oh man, I am so excited for that. I am too. And just for anybody who wants to know, why is this novel cost a little more than a regular paperback novel. Well, this is more in the format of a trade paperback, which costs a little more, but it's definitely worth it. It's 
I, I mean, I haven't read it, but I'm, it's David Mack and it's Discovery and it's new. It's got to be worth it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I've actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I've had a few people ask me that online. Why is it more expensive? And yeah, sometimes, you know, it's a little tough to, to buy new Star Trek novels every month. But if you are a little bit more picky and choosy about which novels you pick up, I would say, and again, not having read it myself yet or anything like that, I'm really excited for this one. And I think this is going to be something special. You know, a new Star Trek series is a moment, is a really special moment uh, for in the history of Star Trek. So, you know, I think it's going to be great to get in on the ground floor on this one and find out what David Mack has in store for us with Desperate Hours. Yes, I'm very excited about that. And of course, as I mentioned, the feature in today's episode is Mud in Your Eye about Harry Mud, and Brandon Shane Motella is going to join us for that. And uh, it's going to be a really fun discussion. But let's just go on. We've got one news item besides the fact that Desperate Hours is out coming out this week as this episode drops. But John Byrne is uh, going to be at New York Comic Con. 2017 and if you know him to be the one who does new vision comics then you know who i'm talking about so apparently he had gone out of convention retirement or he retired last year apparently he appeared at maybe two conventions and said that's it but uh he will be on a panel with the um with Iser hall of fame creator walter simonson to honor the late Jack Kirby. Now, Jack Kirby is one of the greats in comics. He's a great artist. He's got this whole line of just tons of comics in his past. So they're going to honor him and IDW Publishing's president, Greg Goldstein, and IDW CCO, Chris Ryle, will host the panel and they'll present a slideshow of more than 1,300 pieces of original art by Jack Kirby. So... If you're going to New York Comic-Con, check it out. Uh, the panel's Friday, October 6th at 1.45 p.m. It's going to be an hour. It's in room 1A21. And if you go, you will receive a Jack Kirby-related giveaway. Very cool. Ooh. That's excellent. <laughs> check that out. And then afterwards, uh, John Byrne is going to be at the IDW booth, which is booth number 1844, and he'll spend two hours signing uh, from 3.30 to 5.30 on that same day. That would be really cool. I have that, uh, it came out a few years ago, the John Byrne collection of Star Trek comics, that big black yeah. one uh, with, you know, I think Star Trek crew was in there, Blood Will Tell, a bunch of the really great stories that John Byrne did. Uh, man, I, if I were there, I'd love to get that signed by him. So, you know, if you're there, don't miss that opportunity. That would be really cool. You know, my uh, friend and co-host of Star Wars Report, Riley Blanton, is going to be there. I wonder if I can convince him to do that. Hmm. Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, all we have in the news because I say we go right to it and get some mud in our eyes. Sounds great. Let's, uh, let's welcome our guest and uh, get this feature on the go. On today's feature... We're going to go back in time to January of 1997 when a new Star Trek novel came out at that time called Mud in Your Eye. And this was a TOS novel number 
81. This is back when they used to number the novels. So this was one of the later ones because we stopped at what? 97. 97. Seven. I got to say, I miss the numbering system. I wish they would have kept on. Really? Because you know why? I've got no idea which shelf to put these books on anymore because they're not numbered. I'm like, do I put this on my TOS books? Do I put this in my TNG? Well, not TOS, but, you know, with the TNG and the DS9 and all the Typhon packed and stuff, I've, like, chosen arbitrarily as to which shelf I put them on, like it, whatever's the primary one. But I miss the numbering system. I, don't, I was kind of glad when they got rid of it just because I was, and I think this is probably the reason, I was just afraid people would think, oh my gosh, they're up to 100 something and I haven't read all the others. There's no way I can get into this now, even though the numbers really didn't mean anything like mm-hmm. like that, you know? Yeah. So you, so you, you think people are intimidated by seeing number 1000 <laughs> on the cover of a novel? Yeah. Because that's about yeah, what they're about. at now. I think, I think so. Much. At the yeah. same time though, Brandon, I, I, I get what you mean, like the putting them on the bookshelf in a particular order, you know? it was a lot easier with the numbers and I've posted pictures of my bookshelf on line and I've gotten grief for the order that I have my books in. Now for me, <laughs> I have them in the shelf in the order that I reviewed them on my website. So it makes sense to me, but when you see it, then you've got, yeah, it, it's, it's all Nerd. over the place. So, but uh, yeah, back in the day, it was a lot easier for sure. Well, I mean, you could still number them. You can just write in the numbers and keep it going. <gasps> No. You can't sharpie a Star Trek cover. Then I'm still arbitrarily <laughs> deciding. Well, I'm sorry they stopped the numbers, but at least on this episode, we're going to talk about number 81 by Jerry Olshan, who I don't think has written one since. I don't know. I don't recall. He's done a few. I'm not sure if this is the last one he did or not, but there, there were a few over the years. I think this might be the first one of his that I've ever read, though, now that I think about it. I don't remember. If I had them all numbered, I would know. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Foiled again by pocketbooks. Well, let's go into it. Hey, you know what? Mud in Your Eye features Harry Mud. Imagine that. Right. So this one, <laughs> okay, so this one, uh, we, we divide this up in sections and we make notes. So I titled the first topic I wanted to talk about called Don't Eat the White Ones. Now, you're like, if you haven't read this book, you're like, what does that mean? Well, we have two societies in this book. We have the Prastor and the Distrel, and they've been fighting with each other for like many millennia, like just forever and ever they've been fighting, which we never see in Star Trek. And then, kidding, of course, but then they are both of the same race and they're called the Nevisians. And they live on separate Class M planets. So the Prastor is on one planet and the Distro are on the other planet. Now, they're fighting each other. And during their battles, they wear different color clothing so they can distinguish from each other. Because they're the same race, they all look alike or similar. So they wear this different color clothing. And they've been fighting over this one big issue that I'm sure we can all relate to. And that is... Which half of a palco fruit should be eaten by one versus the other? Now, <laughs> I am not making this up. <laughs> this is all true. So there's the white part of the fruit and there's the black part of the fruit. Now, the black part is okay to eat. The white part isn't so much. 
No, they're both okay to eat. It's just if you if you eat them together, the combination there's a chemical in both that if you eat both it of creates them, a, you'll a, die. A really and so nerve toxin, yeah, a toxin. Right. And Kirk asks, "Well, why don't why don't one of you guys just eat the dark color and one of you guys eat the white color?" And it's because the white color doesn't taste right. as good. And that's what they're right? fighting. So over. everybody wants to right. Which, but in a nutshell, though, I mean, how is that any different than any other war that happens on our planet? Right. I mean, like people go into wars over religious differences that are completely irrelevant, but they think that they mm. are relevant. Right. And I and it, 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 when you step away from the situation, it's just as ludicrous as sometimes. Like, what was that one in Enterprise? There was an episode of Enterprise, which I can't remember the name right now, mm -hmm. uh, Chosen Realm, uh, where they're like, we think the universe was created in six days and they think it was seven or whatever. And that's the difference, right? But they've been fighting for generations, right? And, and you know, you hear that in our world as well. Like, there's, you know, different wars between religions because of something simple. And it's the, the book is kind of a comedic book, but they're they're using this to point out the ridiculousness of of war in mm -hmm. general. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, that's a theme that's come up again and again in Star Trek, too. You know, this might be on the face of it kind of the most silly in quotes reason for a war they've shown in Star Trek. But, you know, it really does remind me of let that be your last battlefield. He's black on the left side. I'm black on the right side. And so we hate each other, you know, and it's kind of that, uh, that really arbitrary reason for a war. Well, we got to have something. So let's, let's make it this. And yeah, it is silly on the face of it, but you know, totally. Yeah. It's that allegory for, you know, the reasons for killing your neighbor when it comes down to it, they're probably all pretty silly, you know, don't do it. <laughs> and even though they're fighting over this fruit, I didn't really feel as if they were angry or bitter at one another. I just felt like they used that as the excuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect to it, too. And we kind of learn later in the novel why that is or, or how that's become a part of their society. But yeah, this is this is sport to them. And they don't seem at this early stage in the novel to Kirk and his crew to be concerned at all about people dying. And, you know, why is that? Why are they so cavalier about life? And it, it it's a really, at the start of this novel, it seems really strange. And we don't really get why that is. Well, we find out later on. But yeah, like mm -hmm. without giving spoilers right now, it is an interesting start. Because when I started reading the book, I was kind of confused. I'm like, this is weird. Like, what is going on here? And now that I've finished the book, I almost want to go back and, and read the early chapters again, knowing the context of what these characters are talking about. Like when Uhura is having that conversation with that woman at the at the uh, initial meeting, like the initial dinner and she's asking her questions about stuff and the the woman's almost uncomfortable like it's really well written right some of these some of the scenes where she's like okay they she could tell they're getting uncomfortable so she changes the subject and uhura doesn't understand the answer cuz it doesn't make any sense well what do you mean you had to come and live here and you know like i think he did a really good job of writing this book and it'd be neat to go back knowing what happens in the novel and starting again and catching the context for what these yeah, aliens are talking about. I, I think about. the structure had to be really well thought out to start with in, in kind of a way that like you, I didn't really appreciate until I'd finished the novel and kind of went, Oh wow. Like that, that's more well thought out than I thought it had been. And, uh, and yeah, yeah I, I would love to go back and, and check it out and, and reread that with that in mind. 
because somebody asked us on Twitter, like I had posted a picture of this book the other day and, and it, it was the, the Trek book club and they're like, Oh, should we read this next? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Avatar's better. But like now that I'm done and I'm thinking about this book, like this book's a lot better than you get credit for mm -hmm. while you're reading it, I think. So maybe we should just pause recording and go back and reread the whole book right now and come back and discuss it. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> okay, now we're back. We reread the book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I just, you know, at first it's like, okay, this is Harry Mudd book. It's, you know, maybe just a little silly, but it really does. It really does seem to work, which I guess we'll talk more about later. I don't want to get too much into my feelings and my thoughts about the book at this point but harry mudd does bring about a peace treaty to the civilization by proposing to sell the binary nerve toxin half of the fruit across the galaxy and so hey it's almost like a ferengi episode in a sense you know the ferengi show up and say i'll sell the fruit and help us all make money so they stop fighting each other but eventually they go back to fighting again in the book and that's when we start to see all the fighting going on so any other thoughts about the fighting that goes on between them well i think like we've said it's it's you know on the face of it it seems like a silly idea and plot wise it's it's really just to kind of bring us into the conflict and introduce it you know i don't think there's there's much to do made about it uh I, like that fruit for example is not mentioned in the last three quarters of the book i think like it's never brought up right, again, right. really. So it's it's just a way to bring us into the story and introduce, you know, give a reason for their fighting here. Yeah, the fruit never comes up right, because right. I remember when I was going back to prepare for the show, I was I'd almost forgot why they were fighting because it was wasn't really mentioned again. I was like, yeah, what was the reason again? I know it was something silly, and then when I looked it up, I was like, oh yeah, the fruit. You know, which which might be an interesting metaphor in that, and of itself. That's interesting you too. Know. <laughs> Exactly. Why are they fighting again? Well, yeah, well, because it's such an irrelevant reason, right? So I don't know. I think it's. I think you it's can almost see like yeah. a Navisian kid asking his his parents, "Why are we fighting this war?" And you know, the mom or the dad being like, "Uh, yeah. Oh, the fruit. The fruit. It's the fruit, right? Is it the fruit? It's the fruit. You know, like it's just. It's such a. It's just such a non-reason. It's just yeah. It's why we fight, and they seem to enjoy fighting so much that mm -hmm. it's just like, well, we needed a reason. Well, you know, now that you've said they enjoy fighting so much, there's another small bit of a storyline here. As the book starts off, there's two officers getting married on the Enterprise. And later, Harry Mudd is talking to one of them about marriage is all about fighting and trying to change the other person. And mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought about that and the parallel between what the society is doing. It's like, you know, Harry relates marriage to, to fighting, of course, you know, with Stella. And uh, here we have a bunch of uh, two societies that probably just feel the same way. Well, it's natural. You just fight. That's just what you do. At least that's what they were coming across. And again, it didn't sound like it's anything tragic to them. It's just that's just part of their culture. You just fight just like marriage. You just fight. You know, it's like the same attitude. And and in retrospect, and again, you know, no spoilers till later in the show. I don't want to give away the reason, but. You know, I'm just now thinking about it when McCoy goes to save that guy who's, you know, been in the fight. That is the most torturous thing he could have done. And I never thought about it 
afterwards after reading the book. But yeah, no wonder they're so outraged at McCoy for trying to save that guy who got into this duel and got cut up, basically. <laughs> and McCoy's trying to save him and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, that's that's pretty brutal, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, and it would be like a married yeah. couple fighting and then some stranger comes up and tries to, you know, hey, I'm trying to bring peace to this. Let's settle down. They're like, hey, who are you? Leave us alone. This is between us. Mm. <laughs> but that's that's what happens a lot with Star Trek is they get involved when they shouldn't. But um, talking about the wedding scene, though, like, so I was I was hesitant when I started reading the book because I don't know that the humor in the book, like, I, I don't, I'm not a f- funny movie watcher i'm not really a funny book reader comedy is not generally my thing so a lot of this early comedy fell flat with me you know like uh the scotty when scotty pulls the practical joke on the guy during the wedding i'm like oh man this is just this Mm -hmm. is cheesy and then like when like later on like not much of a spoiler but he comes back to their house or their room on the ship, and he's like, oh, I tried to pull a practical joke on Scotty by making, like, the warp explosion light blink, and she's like, what? That's terrible. And she's, like, mad at him, and he's like, shut up, but he's, like, drinking his beer and, like, mad at her, and I don't know. I don't I don't know that the humor really worked for me, but I do think that the story was interesting. So how, how did the humor I work for you guys? For me, it was kind of almost a symptom of, of a broader issue that I have with this book. Like, I really like the cultures and the setup between them and, and the, the framework of the story. But I felt like the characters were just off in various ways, both the, the characters we know and the, uh, the original characters that are in this novel. It just, their interactions always seemed a little bit off, a little bit, not quite right. And for me, that kind of extends into the humor. Like it just never really gelled for me. It, it, Anytime two characters are interacting, I didn't quite buy it. And, you know, I hate to say that because I do love the world building. I do love the ideas behind the book. But for me, yeah, the humor all really fell flat. And I think that's very much a part of how the characters are written. Um, some of the humor worked for me. Not not all of it. Brandon, the, the parts that you were just saying about Scotty and both of those scenes were probably the worst parts to me. Not even just humor-wise, but just scene-wise. Like, it just didn't seem to make any sense. Like, I couldn't... I mean, it just... The practical jokes, like you're saying, I just didn't think were funny. And I just didn't see it in keeping with the Scotty character. And it's just... Especially the other, the other officer that tried to get Scotty back. It was just like... His wife even said, you know, you're putting the ship at risk. <laughs> you know, it's like, wh- why? <laughs> you know, it made no sense. But then when it came to Harry's lines and 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 was Stella involved, you know, some of those made me laugh. I mean, not really out loud cracking up laughing, but just kind of smile. You know, gave a little smile to myself. Yeah, there were there were a couple of moments like that. And, and we'll get into them because I think. Most of them are more towards the end of the book for me. So once we get into the spoilers, we'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, for the first half of this book, I'm kind of going, okay, why are we having Harry Mudd here? Like, I guess I get that he gets them into the situation and he's, you know, the the monkey wrench in the works that's going to mess everything up. But at the same time, it didn't feel like he was a real necessary part of the story. And I was kind of just annoyed by him. Like I tend to be with Harry Mudd. Uh, Mostly in the first episode he's in, but, you know, at least in this episode, he's not human trafficking. So, you know, that's good. (laughs) 
Oh, Mud's women is way better than I Mud. Like, like I yeah. I mean, I'm better. I'm not talking about the quality of the writing necessarily. I'm just saying the the Mud's character and as how horrible he is. That's all. That's all I'm saying there. Yeah. Well, we do refer to past uh, episodes uh, with Harry Mud in this book, especially with the androids. And uh, there's something else interesting in here that I thought, and that is that the Nevisians use the tr- used to travel among the stars. They don't travel anymore, but when they would travel, it wasn't through starships. They didn't need starships because they would just beam themselves to wherever they wanted to go, to any planet. They would just beam themselves. And I thought, is this the Kelvin timeline? Did Scotty come up with this technology? And so it just made me wonder, it's like we're talking about like almost the same thing as what we saw in the Kelvin universe and in, in the movies about transwarp beaming. And I thought to myself, well, it seemed more acceptable to me when I hear this, oh, this race used to do that and, and I accepted it. But when we see the Kelvin timeline movies, you know, a lot of people have an issue with, you know, well, Starfleet, they can't do transwarp beaming, they wouldn't need starships. And I I think it's not accepted as much. So I was just wondering from you guys, if you found it more acceptable to find a different society being able to do this than Starfleet doing it. I found it interesting that it was just this one society that had it and they like weren't really using it. Right. Like they, they were using it for specific reason within their, within their society, within their planetary system, but it wasn't like this big deal. And, you know, like, Mud finds out some information while he's on the android planet about it. And uh, I think it's neat that it's not something that's, oh, we just have this thing. We just, we didn't invent ships, we invented this. So I kind of I like that, and I kind of think it's cool. So, and it, it, it never really bothered me in the Kelvin timeline, because I'm just like, whatever, it's just something that's in this, this universe. But, you know, maybe the Harry Mud from this novel went back in time with Spock and then created the technology and sold it to the Kelvins <laughs> in the Kelvin timeline. Never know. But yeah, this, I mean, this is something we've seen in Star Trek before, sort of. I was kind of thinking that the book might eventually link these guys to the Iconians who had, you know, the gateways, not exactly transporters, maybe more like stargates, but they still were able to move directly from one planet to another all over the galaxy kind of thing. And the idea that this race used to have this technology, but lost it, you know, many years ago, I kind of thought, oh, maybe they're going to tie them to the the Iconians or something like that. But I mean, that never happened. But at the same time, you know, other races and ancient races have had this sort of technology in Star Trek before. So, you know, it's it's not just a Kelvin timeline thing. We know it's possible. It's just not generally something the, the Federation tends to have. So, yeah, it, it didn't bother me too much here. I don't understand why people are bothered by the transwarp beaming in the Kelvin timeline. Like, I'm on record that, you know, out of the 13 Star Trek movies, all three Kelvin timelines are my bottom three out of the 13, right? Like, I'm not a fan of the Kelvin timeline. But, I mean, in Voyager's prime factors, when they go to that pleasurable planet, they've got transwarp beaming where the guy beamed 40,000 mm-hmm. light years. Where that chick took Harry Mud, uh, not Harry Mud, <laughs> Harry uh, Kim... Uh, 40,000 light years to that Astoria or whatever that planet was called. It's established in our timeline that transwarp beaming is a seven episode of The Next Generation, uh, Jordy reconfigures the Enterprise's transporter to beam a few light years. I mean, yeah, it's it's 
whatever the script requires is what happens. And I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't know why people jump on this issue as like their, I don't know, their hill to die on when it comes to the Kelvin timeline. Well, I, I think it's the argument I've heard, and I don't have a problem with the transport beaming myself, but the argument I've heard is if transport beaming is something that's accessible in the Kelvin timeline during Kirk's era, then starships won't be used anymore and they could just beam everywhere. So what's the point in having starships? It defeats the whole yeah, How are you How yeah. are you going to explore a nebula? You're just going to beam yourself into the middle of the nebula in like a spacesuit? I don't know. Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but I mean, I don't know. That just... You still need starships to do stuff because you need yeah, I, computers to scan. Like I don't know. So, but we're we're <laughs> now we're defending the Kelvin timeline. Heaven forbid! I can't believe I can't believe that. Hold on, let's just. But stop yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a lack of imagination, really. I mean, I, I have already mentioned Stargate. You know, in that show, there's a network of Stargates that they use to travel all over the galaxy, but they still build starships and and use them for various things. I mean, you know, you you're, you can't replace starships with that technology and like brandon said what if you want to go check out a nebula or somewhere you can't necessarily beam to yeah i mean there'll always be starships and eh, whatever people gotta argue about something online i guess <laughs> going on here so we mentioned about these two societies and they don't seem to mind fighting each other and they don't even fear death they actually seem to prefer to receive a hero's death not as if they're Klingon and and they're saying you know it's all honor but they're just like you know we'll just kill each other and if I die hey that would be great because they'll be sent to this place it's like heaven it's it's called is it called Arnhol is that how would you pronounce Arnhol it? yeah that's kind of how I Arnhol so yeah they were sent to Arnhol and of course course Kirk is like what what's Arnhol and, and all that but as people die they just they disappear and sounds like a CW show. The Arn Hall <laughs> on the CW. Yeah, sounds like a CW show. <laughs> <laughs> right after Riverdale. <laughs> well, then, okay, here's the part that I started to really have a problem with this novel. Then Ensign LeBron, who, by the way, is a red shirt and who just got married. So <gasps> what do you think is going to happen? She gets killed and then check off during the whole battle he gets shot and killed and i'm not giving spoilers away we're not even the spoiler because this is early in the book check off is killed sulu's killed scotty sacrifice himself and gets killed and kirk gets killed so one after the other and i'm thinking these people have done so many adventures and been so many situations that they've avoided death all this time. But this one planet of civilians go around shooting each other. They seem to get every single one of these crew members dead. And of course we know they're not dead because then the show would have been over during the five-year mission. But I just thought it was too convenient that they all died. I'd be fine if one of them died. Like if Ensign LeBrun died, then that would be one thing. But the fact that we're seeing Chekhov, Sulu, Scotty, and Kirk, it's like, okay, well, they're obviously off their game or these people here are just really good at battle more than the Klingons and the Romulans and anybody else they've ever faced. Yeah, I'm I'm not defending that because that really bugged me too. But this is such yes. a, a thing in Star Trek and, and it drives me nuts. Um, even when the episode is really good, for example, we see in Cause and Effect, the Enterprise blows up at the beginning. Well, you know that there's some kind of weird time thing or something's going to happen that will make that undone, you know, and, and 
And in this case, you know, obviously it's a Star Trek novel written in 1997 set during the five-year mission. You know, they didn't kill these guys off. And what bugs me in this book is how long they drag it out for the reader who knows they're not dead. But, you know, the, the author is doing everything he can to convince you, oh, yeah, they're really, really dead. But, you know, of course, they're not. And this is this is a thing that came up a number of times in this book, even the beginning when they tease about four or five times who this mysterious guest of the Nevisians is and, oh, who could it be? Oh, they recog- they they said they know you. He says he knows Uhura. What's going on? Well, we know it's mud. But he can't see her. <laughs> we, know, we know it's mud. We see him on the cover. The book's called Mud in Your Eye, but we've got to drag it out for 20 pages. Who could this mystery person be? And I just, this the, this book annoys me in that and then the the you know, these guys are dead. Well, no, they're not. Just get us to the part where we find out how this happened and let's move on. <laughs> I would, I would a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. Yes. That this, these things took a little bit too long for the reveal. Like there was some type of suspense building that mm-hmm. just was not effective, but, but yeah, but I don't know because, but because the idea of the fighting and what happens then is like, cause we're still not at the spoiler part really is fascinating. So how could he get around that? I mean, I guess, yeah, if he revealed it quicker, right? But yeah, he didn't need to drag out Harry Mudd for (laughs) 20-some pages or whatever it was. Like, that could have just been like... Harry Mudd could have just been on the screen, like, right away. And I mean, I'm I'm not in the business of rewriting the book or whatever, but I'd have maybe killed Scotty or, or Chekhov or Sulu. You know, kill one of them and have the mystery for a little while. But the fact that it's, you know, the four of them bang, 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 bang over the course of a couple chapters, it's like, okay, we know they're not dead. We know something's going on. Let's just get to it, okay? <laughs> you know, if if they're separated from Sulu, for example, for a couple of chapters and then he's revealed to be alive, obviously we as the audience know that he's not dead, but it's it wouldn't be such a just slog <laughs> as it is here. But anyway. Yeah, that's how I felt. If it was just one of them, that'd be one thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was one after the other and... I mean, obviously, the author knows that we know that these characters aren't going to die in this novel. So the author's aware that we're aware that they're not obviously dead. Or maybe they are, and maybe there's some way they come back. But the fact that it's not just Chekhov dying, and it's like, oh, well, how are they going to bring Chekhov back? But it's like, Chekhov, then Sulu, then Scotty, then Kirk. And it's like, and if anything, I had a problem with the fact that they all can't seem to get themselves out of this situation, everything they've ever dealt with in their careers and their Starfleet career. It's these people who are on the street that have no real fighting training and ability that can take them all down one by one. And I'm just like, no, maybe one of them, but not all of them. They're too smart for that. And that's the problem I had with that. That said, I do have to say, I really liked Kirk's death. I found myself laughing when he like talks his way through this crowd and has them all enthralled and gives a typical, oops, and gives like a typical Kirk speech and, you know, has them all and they're, they're so impressed. They're like, wow, that was amazing. Let's send him to Arnhall. And they all shoot him at once. <laughs> that was actually pretty great. I have to say. <laughs> well, I want to get the spoilers. because I, I was just going like, to say, let's go well. there. So Brandon, what do you want to say? It's a spoiler time. Okay, so now we're in the spoiler chair. I like the second one when Kirk got <laughs> shot in the head. 
Okay, because I was now I wasn't expecting it. Now that mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting, okay? So I wasn't expecting what ended up where these people get reincarnated, which man, if if I'm getting reincarnated in a place like that, <laughs> shoot me now. Okay, because I want to be reincarnated on Sounds that. Sounds like planet. a lot of fun. <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh so so you get reincarnated and when you're reincarnated, you get reincarnated on the other planet. And then you become an integrated member of their society. So now it's at this point that we realize this conversation that Uhura had with this person at the party and what they're talking about. I had no choice. I had to become a part of this society. And um, But you're not expecting a second death for them. So I like that a lot. And so when Kirk died the second time, I'm like, whoa, okay. And it's just like he's like right there by Harry Mudd and just gets shot in the head by a stray <laughs> phaser blast or whatever, right? So I like that because of the unexpectedness. So here we are. We have this area where we're just frustrated with it. And then it transitions into the something that I think is really cool. So Jerry Olshin, if you're listening, I thank you for putting up with <laughs> our frustration. And now we're on mm-hmm. the, the, yes. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, Kirk and shot in the head is is definitely one of the interesting things about this book. Um, yeah, you know, and the and the switching of teams, and the reason I say that is, it's like my analogy is, you know, just imagine you're playing, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, basketball. I'm going basketball right now. You're playing basketball, and you're against another team, and you get, you know, ejected from the game for some reason. Well, instead of just going and sitting off to the side of the court, you have to go change uniforms into the other team's uniform and now play for the other team. <laughs> That's almost what this is like. After you've had a nice bath, okay, with some naked women and, you know. Okay, so, yeah, that's when the, when they apparently die, they find themselves in a bathtub with naked women scrubbing them down. <laughs> now, at this point in the book... Chekhov's having a blast. <laughs> I I was too actually. I thought, you know, I'm okay with everybody dying now because this is getting interesting. And of course, even Harry dies. I mean, Harry gets rubbed down too in the bathtub. <laughs> uh, I always okay, I, I always want to sing rubber ducky your oh, cuz I'm just thinking like bath time fun. Um, well, since we're in the spoiler territory, I think we'll get into a little later on how they die and then end up in the bathtub. Uh, but before we do that, Dan, I know there was something you really liked about Arn Hall, where they all get beamed to in their second life or whatever, uh, and the young radical. Okay, I, sorry, I oh, want to pause on that because okay. I don't want to forget this. Okay, so this one guy, have you guys read Dune? Oh, a long time ago. I've been meaning to reread Dan? it for ages. Okay, I've only seen the movie, like the David Lynch movie, but this guy's name is Padishah. Isn't that like the Emperor from Dune? Oh, Padishah the Third so, or whatever, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. While you're talking, I guess I'm gonna Google that because I didn't, I didn't do that. But I mean, I don't know. That's like every time I saw that name come up, I'm like, okay, is this some joke hmm. from Dune that I'm missing? I didn't catch that, but yeah, I think you might be right. That's that's excellent. Did Padishah take baths in Dune? I don't. I've only seen the movie, and it's David Lynch, so I'm sure that that book, he he put that book through a blender and then taped it up and, and made the movie. You know, Patrick it, Stewart sure. was in Dune. Yes, yeah, I he think was. I read it when I was in grade six or something. So it's been a long time. But yeah, so we talked a little bit about Kirk catching, you know, the stray gunshot that takes him out. 
Uh, and because he's rescuing Harry Mudd at the time, right? He's pulling him clear of, of what's going on. So it's seen as an, hero- an heroic death. You know, he he dies a dies a hero and goes to Arnhall. And there he meets, uh, well, he kind of finds out what's behind the society and what's going on. And I have to say, I really loved this part of the novel, the debate between the three people that he meets there and the, the young radical and, and young is in quotes, but you know, she's the, she's the young member of the, this trio here who is kind of against this whole idea of, uh, people dying and being reincarnated and dying and, you know, this kind of thing going on, which is meant to teach people a lesson about, I guess, sort of the fragility of life and and how you're not supposed to fight. But to me, it kind of has the opposite effect because because you reincarnate, death almost has no meaning. So the fighting would intensify. So that part, I think, you know, their society kind of falls down there because they're they're not having the intended effect that they're wanting to have. So I'm kind of with her. Like she wants to overthrow society and, and totally change it. And I don't know. I love that giving voice to that. And she seemed like a really fun character to me. And I, I'd love to sit there and listen to their debates <laughs> about this. Well, yeah, and she's only, she's only really in one chapter mm-hmm. too. And I think if anything, she's probably one of the more humorous characters of the definitely. Book. Yeah. The, the interplay between these characters, I'm really digging this at this point. I'm glad that they referenced A Taste of Armageddon mm-hmm. several times in the book because I kept thinking about that as well. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking like, this is similar. To, oh, and then he mentions, you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the planet names, but he mentions the planet. Vindicar and Aminiar uh, 7. Uh, Vindicar and Aminiar 7, yeah, right off the bat. So I'm like, okay, well, he's self-aware of the similarity here as well. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that was something that was coming into my head a lot, too. And I I like that the author mentions it because I think it would have been odd if it hadn't been mentioned because the parallels are definitely there Mm -hmm. for sure. So when people die and they're resurrected, we find out this is all done because of a computer. A computer is taking, I guess, in a sense, beaming their themselves Katras. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, well, it, it, it's taking regular scans of all of the people. Is that right? And then, and then when yeah, they like die, they take the most recent scan and recreate the person. Yeah. So Dan, like at this moment, it could scan you, and let's say two minutes later you die. Well, we'll get the version of you from two minutes ago that's resurrected. But what so happened you won't to remember me those from last two minutes? At, between there, though. Cause that was me. Did I, am I go- okay. Now, now this is going to reopen the whole transport. Does the transporter kill you debate? <laughs> well, no. And that was one of the thoughts I had because I don't, that wasn't really brought up in the book about, you know, are they really who they are? I mean, aren't they just a copy? Mm-hmm. And did they really truly die? And this is just a copy of themselves. I'm totally thinking space balls right now. You're watching now, now, <laughs> but what happened to then? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, it didn't kill them. It killed their stunt doubles. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this is. They're all stunt doubles at this point. There we go. Problem solved. 
But but why is this going on? I mean, why is this computer there? Who built it? And why 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 do this? Mm-hmm. What, what was the reasoning behind? This? I'm I'm of a double mind on this because I was really curious about that too, and I was like, oh, I, I wonder if we're gonna find out, you know, how this all came to be and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, by the end, we still don't really know. You know, they've they've had this technology for millennia and they don't know how it works because their machines just take care of themselves and recreate any gadget they need kind of thing. So, you know, I I kind of almost like that that is unanswered because it wouldn't be answered. You wouldn't be able to find that out. It would just kind of be. So I'm of two minds. Like, I'm really curious myself, but it makes sense that we ultimately don't know. I'm just glad Kirk didn't talk the computer to Oh, man, could you imagine? <laughs> I just killed my best friend. He's over there. Right- no. Oh. Oh. Wow, that's awkward. Well, yeah. Then we've got Stella, Harry Mudd's wife, the android Stella, and then she is damaged, and the computer tries to resurrect her, but it can't because you know it only recognizes humanoids and it doesn't know that she's an android she it just knows she's humanoid so it ju- it just scans her down to the quantum level and creates an exact duplicate but it doesn't know that she's android right anyway yeah. right and they it keeps putting her in the bathtub <laughs> and she's broke <laughs> but again i think that i don't know like i think that's a cool mm-hmm. idea and i don't know i bought that i thought that was cool where it's like because this because this re- resurrection stops working and people start dying for real and it's like well what happened so the fact that there was this android that was brought in with harry mudd i don't know i think that's a really fascinating aspect Mm -hmm. of the book you know so there's a lot of stuff that i really do like in this book and i think it's an interesting solution that they come up with to fix this problem you know um and then that that doesn't work so the, the solution that they come up with doesn't work because it's already fixed itself by the time they have that solution in place because enough time has passed with this computer. So, you know, there's some really good stuff in this novel that I mm-hmm. like. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I kid about some of the technical aspects of it, but yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, this computer has never seen an Android. It doesn't imagine that some aliens would come and bring an Android with them and, and fool their computer mm-hmm. that way. So yeah, it's a really interesting problem that arises and i love that th- this is the one mystery in this story that i really like is we don't know what's causing this and what's we know it has something to do with stella and you know probably because that's the last thing that the computer tried to rematerialize but we don't really know what's causing it and watching the you know spock and and them try and work through this problem is a really interesting aspect of the book to me see because we have a photocopier at work okay <laughs> And if something happens to, like, one of the actions that this photocopier is trying to do, because it's a copier, an emailer, a scanner, a printer, like, all these things. If one of these things gets messed up, you know, I could go in and I need to email myself a bunch of invoices. If I go and email myself 50 invoices, they won't come to my computer because this thing is holding up an action. Whatever problem is here is holding up everything else after it. So once you've deleted that thing... Then all of a sudden, all my emails come through. So, like, that's what I was thinking about this happening because that's exactly what I deal with at work. You know, not frequently, but every once in a while. So, I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was a that's neat a really idea. good analogy. I hadn't thought of that. Now I'm imagining, you know, 
this planet calling some IT guys and, and they're like, have you tried turning it on and off again? <laughs> <laughs> off and on no, again. No, don't turn it on and off again because yeah. then all the emails oh, are yeah. deleted. <laughs> yeah, they didn't reboot the computer in this. <laughs> they didn't have that yeah, discussion to do that. No, I agree. Yeah, when it, I email myself at work and you shut that thing off, all the emails are gone. It just wipes the memory. So you want to do that. No, no, no. <laughs> Oops, accidentally formatted the hard drive with this continent on it. Our bad. <laughs> No, I, I liked it too. I, I I liked it for two reasons, just because I didn't see that coming. And it really made sense why we're having the Stella Android in the story. Uh she has a function besides just running around and you know, hardcore and doing that kind of stuff. But I also liked the resolution to it because I was hoping we would see the real Stella, and we do, because the mm-hmm. solution is if the computer can't fix the Android Stella, then make the computer think it actually does fix her by replacing the Android with the real Stella. The only thing I didn't like about that, I thought she was too easily influenced into going with them. I, I thought that came just a little too easy for her to go, okay, I'll come with you and help you save a planet. Cause they didn't really explain to her what was going on. They just said, we need you to help save a planet. All you gotta do is beam down. And then she's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Surely you're, you have somebody who can take over your duties while you're gone because you're awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I'll yes. Come. Yeah, exactly. And you can talk to Harry. Yeah. And she's now running a hotel. We find that out. I feel like, at that point in the book, you know, I was kind of like, okay, they're flying off to this planet to pick up Stella. And I'm looking at the number of pages left and, you know, he, he's wrapping things up pretty quickly by this point. Yeah, but weren't you hoping that Stella would be total opposite of what her android self was in personality? <laughs> like, I was really hoping, like, Stella would come across as, like, this really sweet person and they're like... Why did Harry program the android to be so different from the actual Stella? And it says because Harry sees her differently than other people. That's what I was hoping. Mm-hmm. But she was pretty much the same. Yeah. And, and that's uh, and your idea is kind of how I've always thought it must be because, you know, Harry's personality is so deplorable and he's such a scumbag, basically. I, I totally thought that that would be the case. And, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed that, that uh, the author didn't go that route, but. Yeah, she she's just as as ridiculous as her android recreation is, unfortunately. Well, and that's what I like about reading. I kind of put myself in as the director of my the visions I'm seeing in my head of this movie that's playing and and I'm taking the writer's work and creating this and and I kept making Stella in my mind a little more human, a little more down to earth, not I mean, she would attack Harry, but I made it a little more subtle. And, and, and so I, I, was, I was purposely trying to make the real Stella feel a little more down to earth and, and a little nicer than the android Stella, because I wanted mm-hmm. that so bad. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. I, I do have to wonder, and I kind of wondered this, we're, obviously one of the reasons we're talking about this book is Harry Mudd is going to be a character in Star Trek Discovery played by Rain Wilson. So, you know, we kind of wanted to do something about with that character. And I really wonder, are we going to see Stella in Star Trek Discovery? I mean, I'd say probably not, but wouldn't that be cool? I would love to yeah, see I, that Yeah, I think it would. Yeah. I think it would. I think it would too, especially if she looks like, you know, totally different like the Klingons do. 
I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, No, I would love to see that. But yeah, I I don't think we will. I doubt it, but it would be a nice surprise. Maybe we will. But, you know, speaking of discovery, so what do you think about after reading this book? Do you think, uh, first of all, Harry Mudd in this book, is it keeping with what we've seen of Harry Mudd in the other episodes? And how do you think this will relate to what we've heard about discovery of his characterization? I think it is keeping in with a lot of his characteristics. You know, he's kind of out for himself, looking to make a buck and and get ahead and steal this transporter technology along with whatever, you know, loose baubles he can find in this palace and stuff. But it's interesting you talked about kind of smoothing Stella's rough edges in your head. I was kind of doing the same with Harry Mudd. I was too, yes. yes. Yeah, because, I mean... You know, Roger C. Carmel in the original series does an excellent job with Mud, I th- I think. Uh, but he's very cartoonish, very buffoonish, um, especially in iMud, for example. And I, I feel like we're not going to get that in Discovery. He's he's uh, We've seen in interviews he's going to be more threatening, more dangerous, that kind of thing. More of a straight-up villainous type character. And that's kind of, I was trying to kind of paint him more in that way here where he's less buffoonish, more dangerous. Um, that said, I do have to say one of my absolute favorite parts was towards the end of the book. And it's, it's one of the humorous bits that really worked for me where you kind of think that mud. And I mean, I, I admit I was a little bit fooled. I have, I'm sad to admit that he's going to be self-sacrificing and courageous. And he's like, okay, I got to sacrifice myself for this and blah, blah, blah. So someone's got to get killed to reset the the machine basically. And mud kind of volunteers himself. And I was like, wow, a character turn. So he's killed, disappears. And Stella's like, you let him get away, you idiots. And Kirk's like, oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's how mud gets away at the end and i was i was laughing out loud at that i thought that was great because and like i said i have to sadly admit the book got me i didn't i didn't even realize that's what he was doing and i'm like oh man i would have been fooled dude that's awesome and that kind of fits like i feel like the mud that we get in discovery again we don't really know but i feel like he's going to be very cunning and very dangerous and and um not somebody who's going to be as easy to fool as we see in the original series, maybe. Yeah, I think I agree with what you're saying there. I don't think we're going to get this kind of Harry Mudd at all. I think this Harry Mudd fits with what we've seen in the television show and the animated series, but we're not going to get this guy at all. And there, I don't think there's any insight into his character in this novel. I don't think there's any insight into what we're going to see in Discovery in the show. Honestly, like the only thing I'm actually really hoping that we come up with is uh, if maybe if the first time we see him or the last time we see him, he's going off with the name Leo Walsh. Hmm, Right. But I don't know. I just I I don't think that we're going to I don't think we have any further insight into his character from this from this novel of what we're going to get out of Discovery. When I was reading the novel and and anytime Harry Mudd was featured of course, I picture the Harry Mudd we've always known, Roger Carmel's portrayal. But every once in a while, I'd sneak in Rain Wilson just to see how it felt. And 
and sometimes the character and and I haven't seen Rain Wilson's performance, of course, on Discovery, but uh, at least at the time of this recording, and so I I did feel that the character started to change a little if I started picturing Rain Wilson in the in the role. But again, mm-hmm. I'm I don't know why that would happen because I haven't seen Rain Wilson play Harry Mudd yet. So mm-hmm. we we will see. We will know. By the time this episode drops, we will know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's a crazy thought. That's awesome. Ah, new Star Trek. Well, about eighteen hours after this episode drops, we'll know and we'll find that's out. True. <laughs> Unless he's not in the first two episodes. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, because I don't know what episodes he's in. Yeah, so. I don't know. Uh, I think what I've heard is most of the previews we've seen are from at least the first two to three. So we'll we'll see him soon, if not now. All right, so. Brandon, what are your final thoughts about mud in your eye? It didn't start off strong, but it ended it ended well. And I would recommend this book. It was an enjoyable read. It was a very quick read. Um, you know, like I just I was really busy, so it it did take me quite a while to read the book. But every time I did sit down to read it, like I was able to read a fair chunk of it pretty quickly. You know, I've just been so darn busy at work and everything lately that it took me like a week and a bit to read this thing, but, um, I would recommend it. I think it's a fun book and there's some really neat stuff in here. There's some stuff that doesn't work, but there's a lot of really cool ideas in this book. So check it out, pick it up, read it. If you still have, if you haven't read it yet by now, um, it's a, it's a fun read. I recommend it. Dan, do you agree with that? Yeah, I have to, I have to say I agree. I think about halfway through this book, I was kind of going, okay. I, I don't know. I don't know what I've gotten myself into here. I'm not really digging this book. It seems kind of a little bit padded, a little drawn out, a little silly. But again, by the end, by the time we're figuring out what's going on, I've kind of come to appreciate that this book is better than I initially thought it was. It's still, I still have some issues. I mentioned the um, the characterization issues that I had with it. That That never really changed. But the story itself and the structure of it, I think, is really interesting. And reading some reviews online, I, I've seen reviews from people where they said, oh, I read 100 pages of it. And I just I put it down. I couldn't finish it. And I'm like, oh, that's I, I can understand. Like at that point, you'd be thinking this is an awful book or maybe not awful, but just not your cup of tea. But by the time you finish it, it really does pay off. So, you know, I. I enjoyed this one. I think I would have to give it probably three out of five, which, you know, if you go by the Goodreads rating means I liked it. So, you know, that's not a bad rating, you know. It, I didn't give it a rating. I just, yeah, I should give it a rating. I give it, uh, I'm going to give it three out of five resurrections. That's a good one. I've, I've, yeah, I didn't do something. Three out of five horrible mutilations that McCoy tries to save. No, that doesn't really work. But three out of five good things anyway. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy this book. Um, I'm, I'm not sorry I read it. And it might actually be one that I have to revisit someday because of the reasons that we mentioned earlier that, you know, it might cast a new light on some of the stuff that happens early on in the book. Yeah, I'm with the, with you guys on this. Um, I thought it felt I don't feel like it's the, a kind of Star Trek novel we would see published today. Um, the structure of the novels are a little different. I feel like they're more uh there's, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to say death, but it, it's, there's just, I don't know. It's more con- like, there's more 
I don't know what I'm trying to say right now, but there's just a lot more that I feel like goes in the book. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this, this book pretty much had like one storyline where a lot of the novels now are more dense. There's just a lot more storylines and more integral parts going on and trying to wrap them up and push them all together where this pretty much just had one consistent storyline, little offs here and there. But, um, but I thought it, thought it was entertaining. And like you said, Brandon, I thought it was a quick read. Um, and I enjoyed it for all the reasons that we said. So I too gave it three on Goodreads. So I'm giving it three out of five rubdowns. Wow. <laughs> three out of five hairy rubdowns. Which means Ooh. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so, <Wow>. Brandon, <laughs> when you're not getting a rubdown and having bath time fun, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. You can find me here on the network. Uh, I've still got to do two more episodes of my Melodic Trek show. I promise I will get to them, um, but I'm not sure when I'm going to get to them. It's kind of a back burner thing for me. Uh, you can find me here on The Edge, which is our new Star Trek Discovery podcast on Fridays uh, with various aspects of the Discovery. And I guess this Friday, I guess we'll be talking about episode one and two finally. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Uh, you can also find me here on the network with my good friend Floyd talking Enterprise on Warp 5. And that is a whole lot of fun. I really think you should check it out. Even if Enterprise is not your favorite show, that's a lot of fun. We're having a lot of fun on that podcast. And uh, dropping this Friday, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my other show with my friends Chris and Tom called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And this month's episode, we review season one of Bates Motel. So we decided to take a little bit of a tangent this month. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me. So thanks, guys, for having me on. This is a this was a lot of fun. I'm really glad. I'm glad that we read this book. I, I did enjoy it. Yeah, me too. And, and always happy to have you on the show for sure. Always a, always a great talk with you, Brandon. Boy, I got to say, I, I'm kind of glad we're done that feature because I could have sworn I heard somebody walking down the hallway behind us yelling, Harcourt! <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I did this real feeling of dread that we needed to end that discussion pretty quick because, yeah, just this just feeling of dread. I don't know. Did you get that? I did. You know, it's like I started to realize that I really do appreciate my wife because I have a healthy marriage compared to what Hardcore and Stella have together. <laughs> not to mention, not to mention the the two Enterprise crew members too. Like that's a that's a pretty, at least at the start, a pretty twisted marriage going on there. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really talk that much about that, but you know, the the two got married and they're already like fighting with each other and already acting as if like they don't even want to be together i was that was interesting and believe me i i have known people like that actually so i mean it does happen but i guess i've just mm. never seen that in star trek before yeah well the bickering bickleys i guess but the less said oh, about them the better gosh, yeah we just <laughs> needed these two to wear capes i <laughs> It would have been funny if they were the bick bickling bricklies or whatever. No, I can't say it. <laughs> All right. Well, the bickering bickleys aren't the only things we're talking about today. <laughs> Here's what else we're discussing here on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. 
I honestly was thrilled with the way that they set it up because like you said, sort of like uh, Russian dolls, I guess, um, is a good way to explain it. You introduce one character in this existing show and then it leads to that character's own show, which leads to the next one's own show. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. There were a lot of comments talking about this roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. You know, yay, I'm so excited, Trek's on. Oh, it's a prequel. You know, oh, mm-hmm. I saw the first trailer and I loved it. Oh, Brian Fuller's no longer working on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's we're getting all this diversity. Oh, look at the Klingons, right? And you could just see it. Seriously, some fans have gone through some serious roller coaster rides. <laughs> To the journey! And so I can see the Herogen viewing themselves as very noble, very civilized. They don't mm-hmm. let their prey suffer, but really they're doing these horrific things, just like we do here in the yeah. real world when we have to go fight wars. Yeah, absolutely. I think they go home and they write an epic poem about it, and that makes it okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the Herogen equivalent of Beowulf. Right? Warp 5. Gary Graham had a, came over and said a couple of nice things, but the funny thing was he said... I've been on this show for four years. This is my first day on the bridge. You're over there firing the phasers? What is going on? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And for the Apple users out there, it's probably iTunes. Uh, So be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And, you know, honestly, if you have the time and the inclination, please leave us a star rating and a written review. That really helps us out. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and on YouTube. And you can also stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And if you'd like to help keep all these shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Heck, you you can just do a dollar a month if you wanted to do that. I mean, we'd appreciate that. That's cheaper than cable. That's cheaper than CBS All Access and Crave TV and Netflix. I mean, it's just... And and we produce more programming than they all do. (laughs) Actually, we probably do. But anyway, visit (laughs) patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Trek FM to get all the details and perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, patron zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash Trek FM. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. If you have any particular thoughts on Mud in Your Eye or any of the other books we've talked about, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to Bruce and I. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash, you guessed it, 
Trek FM. Hey, Dan, do you know what books we have coming up in future episodes? You know, I don't, but there's actually a really good place that you can go find that out. Am I right? You are correct. You can find that on the Goodreads group. So if you go into Goodreads and you search for literary tracks, you can just click on join group and you'll have access to this private group where you can see our bookshelf of books that we previously covered and the ones that we are currently reading. So check that out on the Goodreads group and join in on that fun conversation. And we'd like to thank our favorite people in the whole wide world, our associate producers. And those are Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, and Justin Ozer. Yes, we have a fourth one. Justin has joined the group of associate producers here in Literary Treks, and they support Trek FM Network and Literary Treks as well. So we thank all four of them for helping out with our show. Awesome. Welcome aboard, Justin. Really happy to have you. <laughs> so Dan, when you're not peeling back the black and white parts of the Palco fruit, where can people find you? Well, you know, <laughs> I had a little bit too much to drink and I can't remember which half of it we're supposed to eat. So I, I think I'm just going to do the safe thing and set that whole thing aside over there. And, uh, yeah, you can find me tweeting on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R E T S. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Kurtrats productions. You can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats 47, and you can find me in the Babel conference talking about Star Trek. And Bruce, when you're not being welcomed into Arn Hall as a conquering hero, where can we find you? You can find me not with Stella, that's for one thing, but you can find me here on the network on Trek FM. I am now part of a new show. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, special announcement. We're doing the live show for The Edge, our reactions to each episode of Discovery, and that starts Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. So check that out. I'm with Brandy Jacola on that, and uh, we'll be talking about Discovery live on the edge here on Trek FM. You can also find me on the Star Wars Report podcast, and that is at StarWarsReport.com, of course, talking about Star Wars with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>